Good morning. I know without a big introduction, some of you might not know who I am. Uh, you're probably better off. <laughs> no, we, we joke about that. You know, if you go to, I don't know, list some sort of symposium or go listen to somebody give a talk, they usually give you the person's credentials and whatnot. And I guess that makes sense. You know, if someone were up here to talk about car maintenance, well, then you'd do well to listen to Brother Daryl. If it was me, you'd be like, why should I even care what this guy has to say about, <laughs> about maintaining a car? Uh, and that makes sense to, to some degree, but uh, when it comes to preaching, at least, I'm not saying that a preacher may not have some experience and whatnot that's, that's worthwhile, but the authority is not my background or training or experience or anything else. The authority is this. Uh, and so other than knowing that, you know, my name's Brad and I'll be your preacher this morning, uh, it's not because of me that any of this is coming across as authoritative. Take your Bible to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Uh, I'm not saying, by the way, that it's wrong to give an introduction to the, to the preacher. Uh, certainly if it's someone like Pastor Muncy, then that's somebody worthy of a big introduction. Maybe, maybe, maybe even a little singing thrown in there. Uh, but I've heard uh, many an introduction be so glowing that there's little chance the person's going to live up to what was just said. So I think we'd better just stick with the authority coming from the Bible and uh, do our best to get that across. Let's read some verses here in John chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 1, and then, uh, and then we'll pray and uh, go from there. John chapter 8 and verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives... And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they had continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted in their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of God and for this passage of scripture before us this morning. I pray that you would meet with us for these next few moments, that you would instruct our hearts and our minds, Lord, and uh, cause us to come more into conformity with your thinking. I pray, Lord, that you'd bless your people and strengthen them, and that if there be any in our midst today that do not know you as Savior, that today would be their day of salvation. We love you and thank you for loving us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A familiar story to many, no doubt, uh, and I've kind of mentioned this before, your Bible may have what's called pericope, which is the, the little sort of topic headings that are 
spur, interspersed throughout the scriptures. And it, yours probably says something like a woman taken in adultery or uh, Jesus forgives a woman taken in adultery, something like that. And that can be helpful for you to find a particular passage and you know what it's talking about. But do be careful of allowing that to Uh, set in your mind all that this passage of scripture is talking about. Because if you see uh, these 11 verses here in John 8 as just a story about a woman who was taken in adultery, you've literally missed the forest for the tree. Okay? It's it's about much more than that. Um, In fact, it's kind of interesting that a lot of uh, older manuscripts don't include these 11 verses. uh, Or some of them will include them with a comment that... You know, the ancientest of manuscripts don't include these verses. If you have something other than a King James Bible, you might have them italicized or a note in the margin saying oldest or best manuscripts don't include these verses. Uh, It's even more interesting that some of the old manuscripts that the scribes had copied out, they leave a space blank where these 11 verses would go as if to say, I don't want to put them in here, but I feel like they should be in there. I'm not sure. We're just going to leave some room in case we have to come revisit that. Uh, Some people, uh, scholars have suggested that, well, you know, Christians were concerned that they, people might take too much license in Jesus's, you know, his light attitude towards this woman's sin. And so we don't want them, you know, getting off track by reading it. That's a a pretty dangerous way to go about the scriptures. Uh, What I find quite compelling is that if you just stopped at verse 53 of chapter 7 and then picked up at verse 12, who is the then spake Jesus unto them in verse 12 talking about? Because at the end of chapter 7, they all left and went to their own houses. And then you just pick it up with Jesus talking into the air, I guess. Uh, It's amazing. You start tinkering with the scripture and all of a sudden you make a mess out of things. I think it's great internal evidence to the importance of the scriptures as they're God's words. They don't need to be fixed. They're not broke. They never have been. It's only us that has the problem. All right. And uh, we need to get in tune with God's word, not the other way around. But a little bit of the the backstory. Uh, This chapter, chapter eight, opens with the Pharisees wanting to stone someone. They want to stone this woman And by the end of the chapter, they want to stone Jesus. And if you go back into chapter 7, we won't uh, read a lot of verses there, but uh, chapter 7, verse 12, there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. In verse 20, the people answered and said, thou hast a devil. People just want to charge Jesus with the craziest of things. Honestly, I mean, really, what do people have? I mean, I know this is a rhetorical question, but what does this world have against Jesus Christ? Even if you don't want to believe him, it's like, what has he ever done to anyone? Again, a rhetorical question. He was obviously turning their world upside down doctrinally with his teachings. And we're not trying to minimize the importance of Jesus in any way, but people act like he was, you know, coming and uh, pillaging villages and destroying people's lives. He's doing the exact opposite. And here they think he has a devil. In verse 23 of chapter 7, they're angry with him because he healed someone on the Sabbath. Talk about just getting the, the priorities and the spirit of the law confused. 
This guy is doing something good on the Sabbath. And of course, Jesus has to correct them. He says, well, what, am, what are we supposed to be doing on the Sabbath? Bad stuff, apparently, because healing on the Sabbath was uh, forbidden. Verse 25, they sought to kill him. This is the ungodly crowd for you. Their, their minds already made up. We need to kill this guy. Now we just need a reason. Uh, and that's the world at large, frankly. We, we hate him. Let's find a good reason. Doesn't that seem backwards to anybody else? Shouldn't you have the reason first? Hey, that's indicative of the whole woke, political, social culture we live in. I disagree with you. I hate you. Why? Well, I don't know, but I'll find a good reason. <laughs> I just want to start with hatred because I think that's the best way to go about it. Let's just raise the volume up to 10 before we even think about what we're discussing. Sad, really. In the end of that chapter, of course, the religious crowd, they send the officers to go capture Jesus and they come back. This would be like us. You know, a church doesn't have legal authority, so we would send out police officers to do the job. And in this case, the Jews don't have the, the, the legal authority uh, humanly speaking, so they have to send officers to go capture him, and they're sitting back there waiting, and the officers return. They don't have him. They're like, why didn't you bring him? And they, they just, they stand there with their jaws on the floor saying, you just, you don't understand. Never a man spake like this man. They were just literally overcome by what they heard. The Bible says, by the gracious words that came forth from his mouth. You send us to go, uh, sent us to go nab some sort of rebel rouser, but we listened to him and it's not like you said. Boy, if the world could get a hold of that when we're passing out tracks or, or witnessing downtown or whatever it is, how about listen to what he actually said instead of listening to what other people are telling you he said. Boy, you could go a long way towards a relationship with Jesus Christ if you could get that attitude. I find it fascinating in the scriptures, getting back to uh, chapter eight now, that, you know, God didn't just give us a list of doctrinal beliefs. You ever think about that? I mean, we're big on, you know, categorizing our beliefs. We have systematic theologies. We talk about doctrine and doctrine is certainly important. But sometimes when you think, well, man, why didn't God just fix all this debate we have and just give us a list of doctrines? Here's the 10 things or the 100 things I require you to believe. Done. But he didn't. He didn't give us a, a, a catechism or a confession. He gave us a Bible. And this book is much more of a, of a history book than a theology textbook. Although, of course, it's the world's great and really only pure theology book. But God gave us stories, didn't he? It reads much more like a, a, a history book than some sort of confessional. And here we have a great story. And the people in the story just miss the point. They're focused on their self-righteousness. They're big on the law, but only if it makes them look better compared to others. Wielding the law like a sword. Oh, it's the sword of the spirit. Yeah, the sword of who? We wield it like, you know, take people apart with the word of God. Pretty sure it's the spirit's sword, not your sword. I don't know, just a thought there. Sometimes we think of it a little bit, ah, I'm just going to cut them down with scripture. Okay. Throughout the Old Testament, you find numerous times where God talks about Israel as an adulterous nation. 
That's pretty incredible. When he calls her his wife, he divorces her. And there's a lot of imagery there. In fact, go to Jeremiah chapter 2. We won't look at a lot of these, but Jeremiah chapter 2. Just give you an example. There are several we could look at, but Jeremiah chapter 2. Look at this, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah 2, 2, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord. Look at the imagery here. I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thy espousals. This is God talking to Israel. The love of thy espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not shown. So he's saying, I remember when you loved me and you pursued me like a a spouse. Verse 3, Israel was holiness unto the Lord and the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend, evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. But God is painting a picture here. You see how it starts The kindness, the love of their espousals who went after God and they were holiness to the Lord. And then jump down. He goes on there, but go down to verse 23. God's talking talking about how they have degenerated. Verse 23 says, how canst thou say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after Balaam. See thy way in the valley. Know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary, that's like a camel, traversing her ways. A wild ass used to the the wilderness that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure. In her occasion, who can turn her away? Think about what that's talking about. All they that seek her will not weary themselves. In her month, they shall find her. He's talking about a, a camel and a wild ass. Females in a particular time when males are attracted to them. These animals are known for their stubbornness and difficulty. And God went from, you were like an espoused lover who pursued me, and now you've gone in the way of Balaam. And you're like a camel or a wild ass in heat. It's like you can't be detracted from your idolatry. You've turned so far from me. That's an adulteress nation. But apparently that illustration throughout their history that these Pharisees know so well is lost on them when they interrupt Jesus' teaching, right? Bible says he's in the temple. He's teaching the people. He's sitting down too. We always think of the teacher as standing up, but Jesus is just right there sitting down amongst them. And these Pharisees come in and the Bible doesn't give us every little detail. I always imagine them like dragging this woman behind them. I don't, it doesn't say that, but they bring this woman They put her in the midst of this Bible study that's going on between Jesus and the people, and they stand back and start accusing the Lord, oblivious to what could be going on. Verse 6 says, this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. Accusations. That's that's the devil's work all through the scripture. First time you read about it is, is in Ezra where the enemies of Israel are seeking accusations against the Jews. God's people are trying to rebuild the city and we don't like it. Let's find something to accuse them of so we can feel right in our persecution of them. 
Again, backwards, unreasonable, but that's how the world operates. Jesus said in John 5, there is one that accuseth you, even Moses. So you Pharisees want to point an accusatory finger? Let me show you the law of Moses, because that's accusing you. 1 Peter 3.16, they should be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation. We should live and seek to live in a way, in a life that cannot be accusatory, but the world's going to find a way. You can mark that down. They're going to find a way to bring accusation against you. In Revelation 12, the Bible says the accuser of our brethren is passed down. That's one of the, the titles of our adversary, the devil. He's the accuser of the brethren. He likes to bring charges and allegations. Now, in that case, some of them might be true. And thankfully, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who stands in our place and pleads our case. But that accusatory attitude, that's, that's of the devil. May we not be like that. May we not be like that. You might have to accuse him, but Jesus, but Jesus. That'd be a great study just all through the whole New Testament. But Jesus. He's always against the flow of tide of this wicked world, isn't he? They want to accuse him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Now, it's interesting that I think a lot of times we get uh, what I call FPS, which is uh, flannel graph perception syndrome. And what I mean by that is we get these Bible stories and we think about, about them the way they typically get portrayed on a flannel graph with perfect little neat tidy people and they're usually all smiling and maybe there's some water, there's a sun in the background and we really kind of, it can cause us to lose sight of that these are real people operating in a world just like we have now. These are people that barged into a Sunday school class essentially looking to take stones in their hand and kill a woman in their presence. Think about what it must have been like to kill somebody with throwing rocks at them. That's not light conversation. I mean, that was the law. We're not not condemning them for that, but they were ready to, to start throwing stones at this woman until she was dead. That's pretty heavy stuff. But flannel graph Jesus, well, you know, he doesn't act like that. And the flannel graph Pharisees don't necessarily act like that. And I've heard all kinds of speculation as to what's going on here because it says that Jesus is writing with his finger in the sand as if he doesn't hear them. And you, you could get this idea of, well, he's just daydreaming. I don't think so. He's not daydreaming. Now, he is giving them the oppression. He's responding to them as if he's not even paying attention to what they're saying. But there's something going on. Something going on. I've heard people... Again, speculate as to all the different things that Jesus was writing. He was writing the names of the girlfriends of these Pharisees. I mean, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what he was writing. That wouldn't be my, that wouldn't be my guess. But you go back to Exodus chapter 18, or chapter 8 and verse 19, when Pharaoh's magicians and Moses are in their epic battle there. It says, then the magician said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them. As the Lord said, that's the first time that it's mentioned, the finger of God. They said, all this that's going on, Pharaoh, 
this stuff's too big for us. Remember at first, the, the, the magicians kind of match the, uh, the plagues there, but eventually, this is the finger of God. This is not something that man can do. Go to Exodus. Take your Bible to Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus, chapter 20. Again, a pretty familiar spot. Most people know, if you've dealt with the Bible much, that in Exodus, chapter 20, the Ten Commandments are given. In Exodus 31, the Bible says... God gave Moses, when he made an end of communing with him upon the Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. So I'm not saying this for the sake of speculation, but I do think it would be interesting if you're in Exodus chapter 20, you look down at verse 14, this is the Ten Commandments. What does it say? Thou shalt not commit Adultery. Now, it's, the Bible says these Pharisees took this woman in the very act. I, mean, I don't know what kind of seedy places they're hanging out in where they're catching people in the act. But you think about the fact that the same finger that scared Pharaoh and his magicians, the same finger that etched in a stone tablet these seven commandments, is now writing in the ground in this Sunday school class. And I don't know what he's writing because the Bible doesn't tell us, but if he was writing Exodus 20 and verse 14, I can see where that would have sent everyone running for the hills. Or maybe he was writing the whole Ten Commandments. I don't know what he was writing. But I know it was the finger of God that was doing the writing. The finger of God. Psalm 8 says, When I consider thy heavens the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Those same fingers just cast the entire universe as we know it into space. Luke eleven twenty, the other place it's found, says, but if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come unto you. That's the same finger that's writing in the ground in the midst of this Bible study. The same finger that's connected to the hands that were nailed to a cross on Calvary. The same finger of God that's so powerful it could put the stars in their courses, send the Egyptians in flight, etch the Ten Commandments into a stone tablet. That same finger is in a hand that's reaching out to lost sinners saying, come unto me. Jesus said, I held my hands out to you every day, pleading with you. The Pharisees are thinking there's only two ways this can go. Either Jesus explicitly uh, condones the law and tells us to go ahead and stone this woman, or implicitly he lets her go, saying the law isn't really that important, and then we'll turn on him. They think they've got it all in the bag, but they've overlooked the fact that the one who is the spirit of the law is there in their midst to teach them that they have missed the point entirely. Romans 7.14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual. Spiritual. Sometimes we think of it as the opposite of spiritual, but it's not. The law is spiritual. There isn't a problem with the law. So I have a problem with it. Yeah, yeah, because it's death for us. (laughs) But the law isn't the problem. That would be like saying gravity is the problem with me falling off a building and hitting my head on the ground. 
No, the problem is that I jumped off the building. The gravity took place. That's just the way it is. The law does condemn. It does kill. But the law isn't bad. It isn't the problem. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And that's the simple point that Jesus is trying to get across to them. Jesus doesn't excuse the sin of this woman, as I think most know, and as the verse 11 tells us very plainly, go thy way and sin no more. He doesn't make light of it. He doesn't say that the Pharisees got the, the technical part of the law wrong for accusing her. He doesn't even say that stoning her wasn't the appropriate punishment. But he makes no bones about the fact that they have missed the spirit of the law. Jesus, the son of God, the Bible says he didn't come to destroy men's lives. He came to save them. That's the point. We shouldn't be wanting to stone people. His problem wasn't that they knew the law. It's that they abused the law in self-righteousness and to their own ends. Jesus says, I want to forgive this woman just like I want to forgive you. There's a lesson for these Pharisees. The woman replies, no one, Lord, there's, there's no accusers left. And he, she refers to him as Lord. The Pharisees, unfortunately, they didn't get the message like she did. And they went away in their self-righteousness. What's it going to be for you today? God's reaching out his hands to all of us. What's it going to be? You're going to go away in your self-righteousness? Or are you going to humbly come to the feet of Jesus who forgives sinners, who died for sinners, and who wants to save them? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you again for the word of God and, and for our time together. And Lord, just thank you for the, the kind attention of these people. I pray that you would use these words from you this morning to speak to our hearts, that you'd have your will and way. Uh, Lord, that you'd encourage and bless and convict where it's needed. In Jesus' name, amen.